Good morning, River City. My name is Brandon, one of the pastors here. Grateful to get to join you for worship this morning. If you are new or visiting, especially want to say welcome to you. Uh, we'd love to get to know you. Love to help you get plugged into the community here at River City. And like John was saying, small groups is one of the best ways to do that. So excited as well to continue our studies in the, our series in the Gospel of John together. But like I said, if you've been gone or you're just joining us for the first time, it's, it's helpful to understand that, that John, like the other three Gospels of Matthew, Mark, and Luke, it's kind of like a documentary that tells the story of Jesus' life and ministry. But as we've seen throughout our study so far, John's gospel is really unique. It's really different than the other three. He totally ignores all kinds of things the other three focus on, and he gives us a bunch of new kind of never-before-seen footage or different perspectives on some of the things we have seen before in Jesus' life. And what we see is that the, the reason for all those differences, the reason for the unique aspect about John's gospel is has everything to do with the audience that he's writing to. You see, John's writing his gospel uh, not with people who've never heard about Jesus in mind primarily, but with second generation Christians in mind primarily. People who'd grown up with access to the other gospel writer accounts of Jesus' life and ministry. People who'd heard about Jesus from their families, from their parents or grandparents, some of the first people to come to faith in him. And, and so the reality, though, is that their own lives aren't being transformed by Jesus. They're kind of just riding the spiritual coattails of their families. And what John understands is, is that the reality is that familiarity with Jesus, head-level knowledge about Jesus, is not the same thing as a saving relationship with him. And so at the very heart of John's gospel is what he's trying to do is to wake people up and to wake us up to the, to the reality of who Jesus really is. To kind of, kind of, so what he wants is kind of this lifeless, head-level knowledge about Jesus to increasingly become a life transformation heart-level faith in who Jesus really is. And he wants us to see him in all his glory. And in the first 11 chapters of John's gospel, we've seen how John recounts all kinds of different ways that Jesus went about revealing who he really was to people. We saw one of those ways was through miracles that Jesus did, which John refers to as signs. We saw how John showed Jesus as the fulfillment of many of the Jewish festivals and feasts, and how in him all that they promised and foreshadowed was completed, in a number of different ways. But in our passage this morning, Jesus' public ministry of self-revelation, it comes to a close. And and to see is that it comes to a close as he rides into Jerusalem one final time. And, and he's riding in Jerusalem this time to the cheers of, of, and praise of people who, who rightly believe that he is the Messiah, that he's the promised rescuing king that God would send for his people. But a people who fundamentally misunderstand the kind of rescue he's come to bring. They don't get the kind of Messiah, the kind of king he really is. And so as so we study the second half of chapter 12, we're going to see Jesus very deliberately affirming it and yet at the same time redefining people's understanding of his identity and his purpose. Yes, he is the Messiah, but no, he's, he's not the kind of king that everyone expected or even wanted him to be. See, he hadn't come to rescue his people politically or to free them nationally. He'd come to save them spiritually. As we look at Jesus' final public revelation of himself, what John wants us to see is that, is that the kind of Messiah, the kind of king that Jesus really is, is a king who rules and who saves, not by taking power and by conquering, but by giving up power and by dying. And a king who calls his followers to serve him by doing the same. Can't wait to show it to you this morning, but before we do, let's pray and we'll dive in together. 
Jesus, thanks so much for you and for your word and for gathering us together this morning that we might uh, study it. And so we just want to come to you humbly, God, as we do every week, asking that you might be gracious to keep speaking to us through it, that you might help us this morning to see Jesus for the King he really is, and that you might help us as well to live lives that follow his example, what it looks like to love and serve others. And so God, we need your help this morning. I don't have any power or any ability to, to help people see you rightly or to believe the truth about you rightly, but you do, God. And so we ask that you would so that we might not just see you better and that we might not, not just know you more on a head level, but that we might be captivated by you, Jesus, on a heart level and that our faith might deepen in you. So we need you for all of that. Can't wait to see how you'll work in the midst of that and our need this morning, we pray. Amen. Well, we're going to be this morning in John chapter 12. Verse 12 begins this way. The next day, the great crowd that had come for the festival heard that Jesus was on his way to Jerusalem. And they took palm branches and they went out to meet him shouting, Hosanna, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Blessed is the, the king of Israel. And Jesus found a young donkey and he sat on it as it is written, do not be afraid, daughters Zion. See, your king is coming, seated on a donkey's colt. At first his disciples did not understand all this. Only after Jesus was glorified did they realize that these things had been written about him and that these things had been done to him. Now the crowd that was with him when he called Lazarus from the tomb and raised him from the dead continued to spread the word. Many people, because he had heard that he had performed this sign, went out to meet him. And so the Pharisees, they said to one another, see, this is getting us nowhere. Look how the whole world has gone after him. Now there were some Greeks among those who went up to worship at the festival, and they came to Philip, who was from Bethsaida in Galilee, with a request. Sir, they said, we would like to see Jesus. And Philip went to Andrew, and, Andrew to, and Philip in turn told Jesus. Jesus replied, the hour has come for the Son of Man to be glorified. Very truly, I tell you, unless a kernel of wheat falls to the ground and dies, it remains only a single seed. But if it dies, it produces many seeds. Anyone who loves their life will lose it, while anyone who hates their life in this world will keep it for eternal life. Whoever serves me must follow me, and where I am, my servant also will be. My Father will honor the one who serves me. Now my soul is troubled, and what shall I say? Father, save me from this hour? No, it was for this very reason that I came to this hour. Father, glorify your name. Then a voice came from heaven. I have glorified it, and I will glorify it again. See, the crowd that was there and heard it said that it had thundered. Others said that an angel had spoken to him. And Jesus said, this voice was for your benefit, not mine. Now is the time for judgment on this world. Now is the prince of the world will be driven out. And I, when I'm lifted up from the earth, will draw all people to myself. And he said this to show the kind of death that he was going to die. The crowd spoke up. We have heard from the law that the Messiah will remain forever. So how can you say that the Son of Man must be lifted up? For who is this Son of Man? And Jesus told them, you're going to have the light just a little while longer. Walk while you have the light before the darkness overtakes you. Whoever walks in the dark does not know where they're going. Believe in the light while you have the light, so that you may become children of the light. And when he had finished speaking, Jesus left, and he hid himself from them. 
Now, our passage this week uh, obviously picks up right after our passage last week ended. We saw last week how chapter 12 begins with John recounting how six days before Passover, Jesus, he went to this feast that was hosted for him uh, by a number of his friends, uh, Mary and Lazarus and and their sister Martha. And the meal took place in in their hometown of Bethany, which was kind of just on the outskirts of Jerusalem. And we left off in verses 9 through 11 last week with John describing how this huge crowd who had heard about Jesus and where he, that he was at this dinner, they had, they had come to see him. And our passage this morning, it picks the story up, the following the story, on the following morning and Sunday here. And Jesus is, uh, the same crowd is, is coming out to meet Jesus on his way into Jerusalem. And he, as he's entering the city, they're waving palm branches and they're, they're shouting, Hosanna, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Blessed is the king of Israel. And what John wants to help us to see is that everything that they're saying and everything that they're doing, it highlights the reality that they've come to believe that Jesus really is the Messiah, that he's the king that God promised would come to rescue and redeem and restore his people. That phrase that they're shouting, Hosanna, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord, that, that's actually a quote from Psalm 118, which had become for the Jewish people kind of this messianic rallying cry, right? The word Hosanna it literally is translated in that psalm. It literally means save us, please. It's this, it's this kind of cry for help. But in the years between the Old Testament and the New, it had kind of shifted its meaning from a, a cry for help to more of like a, this confident, uh, this confident uh, rallying cry. It used to mean kind of save us please but now it's it's come to mean the crowd's shouting when they when they're shouting hosanna blessed is he who comes in the name of the lord right they're they're shouting what they're shouting really is salvation is here it's come it's present so when they're shouting hosanna blessed is he who comes in the name of the lord blessed is the king of israel right it's this joyful proclamation right that that the king that they have been waiting for has finally come. And that the salvation they've been longing for, it's finally here. See, the problem is, though, is that Jesus knows that the kind of king he is and the kind of salvation he's come to bring is not the kind they were expecting and it is certainly not the kind they were hoping for. You see, the Israelites had been under foreign occupation and oppression for the vast majority of the last 500 years of their history. First it was the Babylonians and the Persians and the Greeks with Alexander the Great and then the Syrians and currently it was the Romans. And so it's understandable that the Messianic king that the crowds in in Jerusalem were hoping for and expecting would would be one that would finally set them free from kind of political, national oppression and would restore them as a people, as a nation to kind of their former place of international prestige and glory glory. And ever since the Maccabean revolt about a hundred years prior to Jesus's life here that drove out the Greeks for a brief period of time, palm branches were were used as this symbol of that kind of political uh, militaristic victory that would secure a kind of national freedom and that the Jews were so desperately hoping that the Messiah would bring in, that he'd usher in for good forever. And so as they're not just calling out Hosanna, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord, as they're waving palm branches. It wasn't just this enthusiastic praise. It was, this, it was the way that they welcomed this conquering king, a hero who they thought would rescue them from the political powers of Rome and would restore their nation. 
But again, that's not the kind of king Jesus had come to be. That's not the kind of salvation he came to bring. You see, he, yes, he had come to rescue his people, but not from Rome. He'd come to rescue them from the real enemies of Satan and sin and death. One commentator sums it up this way, right? The crowds were looking for a Messiah that was going to rescue them politically, free them nationally, but Jesus had come to save them spiritually. See, the crowds thought that he was coming to set their situations right. But Jesus had come to set them right, to set them right with God. See, what the crowds needed saving from, what you and I need saving from, is not our situations. It's the consequences of our sin. See, from Genesis to Revelation, we see that the wages of sin is death. That, that might seem extreme because we tend to view sin as like bad choices or bad behavior. But the way that the Bible defines what sin is, is that sin is actually mutinous rebellion against God. You see, we all, instead of, instead of submitting to God as the true and rightful king of everything, we all choose to live as though we're king, and we dethrone God and we enthrone ourselves as the arbiters of our true and right and good, and we reject his ways and we ascribe our ways as the highest. And, and so the reality is that we all want to be God and we act like we are, and, and so sin is not just a bad choice, it's not just bad behavior, that's the symptoms of a mutinous rebellion against God. And it's a choice we've all made. And that's the thing we need saving from. You see, when Jesus comes riding into Jerusalem, he's, he's not coming to start a war. The crowds thought he was. You see, Jesus wasn't coming to start a war. He was coming to finish one. And the war he was coming to finish was the one that all of us have started with him. And the way he's going to finish it was altogether surprising. See, because he hadn't come to conquer his enemies, he'd come to make peace between them and God. You see, that's the thing that he's really precisely trying to communicate by riding into the city on, the, on a donkey, on the colt of a donkey, right? And I don't know about you, but you'd think that if a king was coming into a city, he'd be riding like a sweet white horse, right? Kind of Gandalf style when he comes riding in to rescue everybody at the, like the, in that scene in the Twin Towers, right? He has that sweet white horse and everyone's like, wow, that is amazing, right? Not a donkey, right? But the reality is that Jesus is not trying to send the message that he's come as a conquering king. He's trying to send the message that he's come as a king who makes peace. You see, and in the ancient world, anybody riding into town on a donkey, any, any king that would come riding into town, that was a, always represented peace and someone who had peaceful intentions. You see, what Jesus is trying to do is he's trying to affirm the proclamation that he is the Messiah. And yet at the same time, he's trying to redefine the kind of Messiah he is. You see, he's not the victorious, conquering king that they wanted. Instead, Jesus comes riding into Jerusalem as the humble shepherd king that 500 years before his birth, the prophet Zechariah said would come riding into Jerusalem on a donkey. A king who, Zechariah goes on to prophesy, wouldn't, would take away all the chariots, would remove the war horses, would break the battle bows and would instead be a king who proclaims peace. One commentator puts it this way, the imagery of Zechariah in verse 14, it's framed as this conscious alternative to a militaristic rule. Jesus deliberately demilitarizes their vision of the Messiah, and he declares that the nature of his messianic rule is one of peace. 
You see, but what you have to see is that it's not just a, a reign of peace for Israel. You see, Zechariah and John, they both, make, they both make clear that Jesus' messianic rule and reign, it's a rule of peace, not just for Israel, but for the nations. See, that brings us to this other way that Jesus is trying to redefine what the kind of Messiah he's come to be. You see, the Jews thought the Messiah was coming to rescue them. But the truth is, is that the Messiah was coming to rescue all people. And John points that out in the following verses with this kind of ironic humor almost, right? The Pharisees, Pharisees in verse 19, right? Their worst nightmare is coming to reality, right? And we saw last week how the thing that they were trying to avoid at all costs was that people thinking that Jesus is the Messiah and trying to usher him in as some kind of a king because what they knew is that Rome would just crush that. And in verse 19, their, their, their worst nightmares come to reality. They say, see, this is getting us nowhere. Look, the whole world has gone after him. The great crowds, everything is going the wrong way for them. And their words, they're meant as this exaggeration, right? They're meant to be like, you've got to be kidding me. Everyone is following this guy. But John wants you to see in the next verse that their, that their, their cry of frustration was actually spot on to what God was actually doing. To the very next thing he writes, verse 21, verse 20 and 21. Now there were some Greeks among those who went up to the worship at the festival. They came to Philip, who was from Bethsaida in Galilee, with a request. Sir, they said, we'd like to see Jesus. See, that word Greeks in verse 20 doesn't mean people who, who are from Greece necessarily. Instead, it was kind of a label that would have been used for people who just weren't from Jewish backgrounds. In other words, it was a term that was used to describe a Gentile, someone who wasn't Jewish. You see, and, and these Gentiles, they come to Philip because he has a, 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 a Greek name and he's from a Greek city. And so they think, you know, maybe this guy will help us to connect with Jesus here, right? And John doesn't tell us exactly who these Greeks were and he doesn't give us any information. He doesn't even actually tell us if Jesus actually talked with them or not. Because their conversation with Jesus is not the point. See, the point that John is trying to make is that the fact that these Gentiles were seeking Jesus. See, one of John's major themes throughout the gospel is that Jesus is not just the redeemer of Israel, but that he's the savior of the world. Chapter 1, verse 29, John the Baptist cries out that he's the lamb of God who's come to take away the sin of the world. Chapter 3, verse 16, right? And when talking with Nicodemus, Jesus says that God, or John tells us that God loved the world so that he sent his son in chapter 442, the, the Samaritans, they rightly identify Jesus as the Savior of the world. In chapter 6, verse 33, John tells us that Jesus gives his life for the world, and he gives his life to the world. In chapter 8, verse 12, Jesus says that he is the light of the world. You see, you know what? So what John's trying to make clear is that these Gentiles who have come seeking Jesus, they're a representation of this broader world that Jesus has come to rescue. They're, they're the other sheep that Jesus said in Matthew chapter 10 that he was the shepherd of and that he was bringing into his fold. They're the scattered children of God that we saw last week that Caiaphas, the high priest, prophesied Jesus would die to bring into his family. You see, Jesus is the king of all people. You see, and what you have to see throughout John's gospel is not just that all people are welcome to come to Jesus, but that Jesus draws, that he pursues, that he seeks out people from every 
tribe and tongue and nation to be citizens of his kingdom. See, the reality of the gospel is that Jesus is altogether exclusive. We're going to see in a couple of weeks, he claims to be the way, the truth, the life, the one path to know and relate rightly with God. And at the same time, he is wildly inclusive because he calls every people, all people from every tribe and tongue and nation to follow him. See, Jesus is the king who's come to seek and to save a world who is lost, not just the Israelites, but the nations. See, but Jesus' redefinition of his messianic kingship, it doesn't just stop there with him being the king of peace and the king of the nations. You see, when he gets word about these Greeks who are seeking him, he responds in verses 23 through 24, and he, he says, the hour has come for the Son of Man to be glorified. It's this very seemingly odd response. He goes on to say, very truly I tell you, unless a kernel of wheat falls into the ground and dies, it remains only a single seed. But if it dies, it produces many seeds. That phrase, the, the hour of Jesus that's come, we've seen that throughout John's gospel. And up until now, every time for Jesus talking about his hour, it's always been this future tense. Not yet, not yet, not yet. It's coming. And yet here in chapter 12, we see that the waiting is over, the hour's finally arrived, and the whole reason that he's come is finally at hand. That he's not just the king of peace and the king of the nations, that Jesus is showing us that he is the suffering servant of Isaiah 55. He's the king who gives up his life so that he might draw people from every tribe and tongue and nation to follow. See, in the ancient world, especially in the Roman world, the way you got glory, the way you got honor, the way you got prestige was always victory. You won a battle. And yet Jesus is saying here that his kingly glory is not going to come by conquering his enemies, but instead by dying in their place. You see, the crowds, they're shocked at that revelation. That does not compute for them. Right, they say in verse 34, they respond, we've heard that the law from the law that the Messiah will remain forever. So how can you say that the Son of Man will be lifted up, that the Son of Man will, will be killed? Who is this Son of Man? And they're not asking, are you the Son of Man? Are you the Messiah? They're saying, what kind of a king, what kind of a Messiah, what, what kind of a rescuer gets glory through death? Not by winning a battle, but by dying. That's not how it works, Jesus. See, but Jesus has come. And he's come to tell them that's how his kingdom works. Like a seed that goes into the ground and dies in order to produce fruit, so too he is going to die in order to bear much fruit. He says, one commentator puts it this way, Jesus was telling the crowds that he would fulfill his kingly role by dying and thereby producing his life in others. Like we talked about last week, he, or earlier, Right? He hadn't come to start a war, he'd come to finish one. Colossians chapter 1, verse 20 puts it this way, by making peace through his blood shed on the cross. See, what kind of a king, what kind of a rescuer comes to rescue and save and rule, not by taking power and conquering, but by giving it up and dying? Jesus says, he does. That's what his kingdom looks like. 
And that is such good news. Because here's the reality. If Jesus came to be the conquering, ruling, reigning king, then all of us would be crushed. You see, none of us stand on the right side of Jesus' just judgment of sin. All of us, by our own choice, stand as his enemies without faith in all he's done for us. And so the fact that his kingly rule is ushered in, not by an act of conquering his enemies, but by an act of dying for them, that's the best news in all the world. See, and here's the reality. It didn't make sense to the Romans, and it didn't make sense to the Greeks, and it didn't make sense to the Jews. It only makes sense when God, by his grace, opens your heart to see his, to see him for who he really is. See, one of the ways that you can tell if you know Jesus for real, one of the ways you can tell if you have an authentic, real belief in him, is when the gospel of Jesus' death for you is glorious. When you don't just look at it as some good information, as an important transaction, but when you see it as beautiful and captivating and compelling. Because that only happens when God makes it that way to your heart. It's confusing. It doesn't make sense unless he does. But more than that, when you really understand the good news of the gospel, when you put your faith in the real Jesus, what happens is that you see his death for you not just as a glorious and beautiful picture, but when you see it as an example for you to follow as well. You see, Jesus doesn't just want people to recalibrate their understanding and their expectations of him and his kingly rule and reign. He wants them to redefine what it means to follow him as king as well. You see, Jews, their, their vision of the Messiah is that he would come, he'd usher in this victory on their behalf, and they just get to kind of ride the coattails of everybody finally respecting them again. Right? It was just their way to get back on top. And yet Jesus says the kingly, his kingly rule and reign is not about conquering and victory. It's about death in their place so that they might really live. He, and he calls his followers to imitate his example. In verse 25 and 26, he says it this way, anyone who loves their life will lose it, but anyone who hates their life in this world will keep it for eternal life. For whoever serves me must follow me, and where I am, my servant will also be. My father will honor the one who serves me. You see, Jesus wants us to see that following and serving him as king means imitating his example, not just benefiting from it. You see, instead of loving this life supremely, we love him supremely, just as he loved the Father supremely. And it leads us to live a life that's not characterized by hating ourselves. That language of love and hate, it's, it's not meant to you're supposed to hate your life. It's, it's this kind of way of Hebrew writing that contrasts these two things in order to set them apart in the most starkest of terms. And so it doesn't lead us to a life characterized by hating ourselves, but instead by dying to ourselves. That's the thing you see Jesus doing. Right? You see in verse 32, right? I can't remember the exact verse, right? But he says, he says, my soul is troubled. Because what is our, what he knows what his hour means is that it's the hour of the cross, it's the hour of his death. And that was not going to be an enjoyable experience. And yet Jesus says, Shall I ask this to pass? No. It's the very reason I've come. See, he's dying to his own will and his own desires that he might glorify the Father. And he calls all who would follow him to do the same. 
The reality is that that is hard. We're going to see in the coming weeks as Jesus spends the next few chapters in John's gospel uh, speaking alone, privately with his disciples, and he does not sugarcoat for them the life they are about to walk into. In his life, that is going to be full of difficulty and pain and hardship. There'll be a lot of hard things about it. He doesn't sugarcoat that, but he also does not hold back from them the goodness of the promise at the end of it. You see, the good news of this call to follow Jesus into a life characterized by dying to ourself is the reality that it leads to real life. It leads to abundant life. It leads to the thing you're after. See, he says whoever hates their life in this world, what does he say? They'll keep it for eternity. It won't just be this temporary moment, flash in the pan, it lasts forever when it's lived for him. He says, where I am, my servant will also be. You don't just get some reward, you get him. You get to be with him. And he says, my father will honor the one who serves me. You get the honor of the king and creator of the universe who says, well done, good and faithful servant. It's better than any praise or any honor anyone could ever give This conclusion to mere Christianity, C.S. Lewis sums up this perspective rightly. I think he says it this way. He says, this principle runs throughout all of life from top to bottom. Give up yourself and you'll find it. Lose your life and you'll save it. Submit to death, death of your ambitions and favorite wishes every day, even death of your whole body in the end. Submit with every fiber of your being and you'll find life. Life eternal. Look for yourself. And you'll find in the long run only hatred and loneliness and despair and rage and ruin and decay. But look for Christ and you'll find him. And with him, everything else thrown in. See, the good news of the gospel and the good news of Jesus' invitation to the life that is characterized by the hard choice to keep dying to ourselves and living for him, is that at the end of that road is real life. It's the glory, it's the honor all of us are so desperately looking for, but it comes from the one place that satisfies. It comes from God himself. It's not easy, but it's worth it. And it's only when you see Not just a prize at the end, but when you see that Jesus could have and should have conquered you instead of coming in peace towards you. That he should have ruled and reigned with an iron fist, but instead he comes to rule and to save, not by taking power and by conquering, but by giving it up and dying. That's the only way you get the kind of motivation and strength you need to actually choose in joy to keep dying to yourself and living for him. That's the only way it happens, is when you see that that's what he has done for you. You don't get it any other way. Religion cannot give it to you. Duty and obligation cannot give it to you. Only the beauty of the cross and Jesus' death for you can motivate your heart to keep dying to yourself and live for him. Nothing else. You see, and it's his death for us That's the thing we're remembering and celebrating every week when we take communion. Reminding ourselves about his body and blood which was broken and shed as his seed went into the ground and died so that you and I might be the fruit of bared life from him. 
And so if you put your trust in Jesus to be your Savior and your King, then whenever you're ready during our time of worship, go back and take communion. There's a table in the back on the left and on the right. You can tip the bread and the juice as a reminder of His body and blood broken and shed for you. But if you're here today and you haven't yet placed your faith in Jesus and you're still figuring out what it means to follow Him and if He's a King that's worth surrendering to and submitting to, I just want you to know how welcome you are here and how welcome your questions are and your process is, and that that journey is welcome here. But I want to encourage you, hold off on taking communion. Because God is not after religious rituals, and he's not after going through the motions, and he's not after trying to earn something from him with ritual. He's after a heart that says, Jesus, you've given me everything. And my hope is found in you alone. And so as we sing and as we worship God, as we remember the gospel together in song, I want to encourage you this morning, talk with him. See, at the heart of what's going on in our passage this morning is that Jesus is revealing himself as the true and ultimate king. He's showing you who he really is. And the reality is is that there are only two ways to respond to his self-revelation. Tim Keller sums it up this way. You can either crown him or you can kill him. There is no middle way. You see, to crown Jesus is to to reject our own ideas about the kind of king he is and the kind of salvation we want him to bring and to instead agree with him about who he says about himself and about the kind of salvation he brings, to admit that what we really need saving from isn't bad situations or bad behavior, but is our mutinous sin and rebellion against him, and to throw ourselves at the foot of the cross where his grace and mercy flow out in the most glorious way, and to follow him into a life of surrender to the Father, a life that's characterized by a continually choosing to die to ourselves so that we might actually live truly and we might offer life to others and that he might be glorified in us. Or you can reject him like the religious leaders and the crowds did that following Friday. You can reject his kingly rule and reign in favor of your own. He's not the king you want. He's not the savior you're looking for. But those are the only two options. There is no middle way. See, Jesus has announced himself as the true and ultimate king. He will not be liked. He will not be merely admired. He will not be simply respected. He will either be crowned and worshipped, or he will be rejected and killed. And that's the only options. And I say that to you in the starkness of that choice, not only because it is true, Because the reality is, is that Jesus is not just the king who has come. The Bible makes altogether clear, he is also a king who is coming again. And when he returns again, it will not be as the humble king of peace. John records later in Revelation chapter 11, the vision God gives him of what that day will be like. In chapter 19, he says it this way, I saw in heaven standing open, and there before me was a white horse. Not a donkey. 
His writer was called faithful and true. With justice he judges and wages war. His eyes are like a blazing fire and on his head are many crowns. He is dressed in a robe that's dipped in blood and his name is the word of God. The armies of heaven, they followed him riding on white horses, dressed in fine linens, white and clean, and coming out of his mouth is a sharp sword with which to strike down the nations. For he will rule them with an iron scepter. He treads the winepress of the fury of the wrath of God, and on his robe and on his thigh is written the name. King of kings. Lord of lords. You see, on that day, he is not coming gently. He will not be coming humbly. He will be coming in all his glorious power to rule and reign. He will not be coming as the king to be crucified. He will be coming as the king to be coronated and crowned. And he's not coming to rescue sinners, for he already came to do it. On that day he will come to rule and to reign. And if you have not given him your allegiance, it will have been too late. And so I stand before you this morning in love for you. As Jesus at the end of our passage urges all who are hearing his voice, he says you will only have this light a little longer. Believe while you have it before the darkness overtakes you. Don't just admire him. Do not just respect him. Do not be amazed by him. Crown him as king. Submit to him as Lord. And enjoy, receive the salvation he's come to give you. See, some of you are here this morning, and you needed me to say that to you because you have been waffling back and forth endlessly with Jesus. And in love for you, I want to call you, submit to him as king. Trust him as king. Surrender to him as king. It's not just the way to life, it's the way to everything you are looking for. Ask him this morning what is keeping you from following him. Ask him to give you eyes to see what is it that is keeping you from crowning him as king in your own life. He wants to help you see that. For some of you who have a lot of clarity about it, for others of you who just don't know, ask him to give you eyes to see what is keeping you from surrendering and submitting to him as king. For those of you who are here and you have submitted and surrendered to Jesus as king, you see him as the king of peace who's come to make peace with you and God, I want to encourage you to ask the question, where is Jesus continuing to invite you, to call you, to keep dying to yourself and living for him today? See, the invitation is not just that we might receive the benefits of his death for us, but that we might imitate his life and so live for his glory. How is he calling you to follow him into a life of dying to yourself so that you might truly live and offer his light and life to others? Is it with your money, your career? Is it with your relationships, your time, your sexuality, your aspirations? 
What is it that he is calling you to die to so that he might live through you? Ask him to help you see. He is worthy of everything you have to give him. He is the king who has come, and he is the king who is coming again. And might we live in joy in light of both of those days. Let's pray. Jesus, thanks so much for you and for your word. Thank you that you have revealed yourself to us in it, and that you want to be known. Thank you, Jesus, that you came 2,000 years ago as the king of peace, the king of the nations, as the suffering servant who would give up his life instead of conquer others. Jesus, help us to put our faith in you as that kind of king and to live lives that are characterized not just by admiring your sacrifice, but by imitating it. By living lives that are characterized by dying to ourselves so that we might actually live for you and for your your glory as you did for the Father. Help us to see you doing it for us so that we might have the joy and power and motivation to do it for you. We love you, God. Amen.